So if we're gonna be faithful in Babylon, then our courage in the lion's den will come from our consistency in our prayer life. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. You know, uh, scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn. So today I want to offer my sincerest condolences to all the Purdue fans in the room this morning. I'm sorry. We're deeply sorry. Uh, You know, but it's like uh, our discipleship minister, Kyle Nelson, told me this morning, you know, if you're going to get rejected by St. Peter, better now than later on at the pearly gates, right? (laughs) Look on the bright side. Uh, hey, today I want to take a stand with you against the tyranny of normalcy. I want to dream together with you about what it would look like for a group of Jesus followers to shed the soul-sucking pressure to conform and instead be willing to look foolish for the glory of God. Now, The problem with that is that deep down inside of us, most of us still have this lingering fear of looking foolish to the people around us. And it's kind of hardwired into us from ever since we were little kids, right? It was was the fear of looking foolish that kept us from raising our hands in class as third graders to ask that question, because what if it's a dumb question, right? And it was that fear of looking foolish in high school that kept us from asking that person out on a date, because what if they say no? And it's the fear of looking foolish that keeps us from asking God to do something miraculous. Because what if he doesn't answer our prayer the way we want him to? Now, there was a study that explored this fear of looking foolish by examining the concept of divergent thinking, thinking outside the box. And this study found that 98% of kids between the ages of three and five ranked in the genius category for divergent thinking. Little kids are really good at thinking outside of the box. But then as those kids got older, between the ages of eight and 10, only 32% of them were good at divergent thinking. By the time they were teenagers, only 10% of good them were good at divergent thinking. And by the time they got to age 25 or older, only 2% of people ranked in the genius category for divergent thinking. And that's because the world around us is hardwired to systematically suppress people who run against the grain. The world likes to hammer down any nail that sticks up. You know this, the world around you is gonna say, hey, can't you just be normal? Can't you just be like everybody else and go with the flow? But we know that if we're going to be followers of Jesus in Babylon, we have to be willing to look foolish because we are living in a world where the values of the kingdom of God are anything but normal. So we have to be willing to look foolish. Like Riley mentioned, we're in a series right now through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament in the Bible. The Old Testament is the part of your Bible that takes place before Jesus was born. And the scene for the book of Daniel is this. God's people, the Israelites, they were conquered, they were sent into exile in a place called Babylon. Now Babylon was a real historical empire, but Babylon is also this image kind of symbolically woven through scripture meant to portray the spiritual forces that are at work in every nation throughout history to keep God's people from being faithful to him. 
And so the Bible would tell us that it's not just Daniel. You and I are actually living in Babylon, like Daniel was, trying to figure out how to be faithful to God in a world that does not welcome our convictions. And that's gonna mean sometimes that we have to be divergent thinkers. It means that sometimes we're gonna look foolish. And we've seen that so far in this series. Back in Daniel chapters one and two, we saw Daniel and his three teenage buddies. They're taken to Babylon and they agree. They're gonna work for the empire. They're gonna be King Nebuchadnezzar's helpers. Yes, we'll do this for you. But they were willing to draw the line and say, we'll do that, but we're not gonna eat your food. We're not gonna be defiled, even though it looked foolish. And then in Daniel chapter three, Morgan told us the story of Daniel's teenage buddies, how they refused to bow down with everybody else. Even when everybody else was bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, these three decided we're not gonna do it, even though it meant they were gonna be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they were thrown into the fire, but God was with them in the fire and they emerged from the fire unharmed. The text says they didn't even smell like smoke. I can't even roast a marshmallow without smelling like smoke. That's how strong God is. And then in Daniel chapters four and five, we saw last week, Derek walked us through the story of King Nebuchadnezzar's pride and how God humbled him and made him kind of go crazy and he acted like a cow and ate grass for seven years. And you can imagine for King Nebuchadnezzar, this would have been a very moving experience. (laughs) Utterly humiliating. I'm just skimming the top of my dad jokes right now, you guys. Thank you for bearing with me. Okay, but Nebuchadnezzar, right, he gets the point. He humbles him, God reminds him who the, who the real king is, and he learns his lesson, but Nebuchadnezzar fails to teach the lesson to his son Belshazzar, and so because of his son's pride, the Babylonian empire is overthrown, the Persians take over, and now there's a new king, Darius, on the throne. But Daniel gets to keep his job in the new regime. And so here we are in Daniel chapter six, and this is gonna be a story you might be familiar with, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's another story of victory for Daniel. And so it just begs the question, how does Daniel do this? Like, how how does he keep winning over and over? How is he able to be faithful in Babylon? How is he able to be a divergent thinker for the glory of God, even when it looks foolish to the people around him? Well, let's look for some answers. Let's dive into the text here together. Uh, In Daniel chapter six, where the new king Darius is setting up his government. Um, I'll read the words in white and you guys read out loud the words in yellow on the screen. Here it is, verses one through three. This is the word of the Lord. It says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So in the Persian Empire, they didn't just have 50 states, they had 120 states with 120 governors. And over those, they had three vice presidents. And then King Darius set over those guys one executive VP. And this was Daniel, the number two guy in the whole kingdom. But all the people under him, they didn't like that very much. So look what happens, verses four and five. It says that this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So why do these guys want to take Daniel down? Um, 
Maybe they're jealous. Maybe they're prejudiced because Daniel's a Jew. Or maybe those guys have been using their government positions to kind of skim a little off the top, you know, line their own pockets. But they know with good old Daniel in charge, there's going to be no kickbacks for them anymore. So they decide to take Daniel down. The problem with that is it says that Daniel was a good dude. And Daniel was good at his job. There is no corruption in him. And so we know this chapter is gonna end with a miracle in the lion's den, but this chapter also begins with a miracle in the Capitol building. And here's the miracle. A squeaky clean politician. Can I get an amen? Like what a novel idea, right? So here's their plan to take Daniel down. Because there's no corruption in him, they have to do this. Verses six through nine. It says, so these administrators went as a group to the king and they said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators and prefects and satraps and advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. There's the fine print, right? which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Well, yeah, of course he did, right? (laughs) You gotta give these guys credit. They play right to the king's ego, don't they? They come up to the king and they're like, oh, Darius, man, we love you. You're just doing such a great job as king. This is is really great. Good job, king. In fact, we love you so much. We wanna just have like a, a Darius appreciation month. We'll have a Darius parade and Darius day sales and it's gonna be awesome. In fact, king, we should make a rule so that for a whole month, nobody prays to any other God except you. It'll be a great way to unify the kingdom. What do you think? And Darius, bless his heart, (laughs) takes the bait. It's kind of funny, actually, like throughout this text, Darius appears as kind of a likable guy. He's just gullible. (laughs) He says, okay, sounds great. He's Mr. Gregarious, and this is hilarious. He doesn't think they're nefarious. He just thinks they're pro-Darius. I'll stop. (laughs) Here's the point. Somebody said amen to that. Come on. (laughs) Let a guy have his fun. (laughs) Here's the point. Maybe the secret to Daniel's faithfulness in Babylon was that he expected hostility. As a follower of God in exile in a world that wasn't uh, you know, welcoming to his beliefs, he expected hostility. And we should expect the same thing too as followers of Jesus. We should just expect hostility. You guys, you remember these in the old Staples store commercials, right? The, the, the easy button, you just push it and all your problems go away. That was easy. Pretty great. I've had this thing on my office desk for like a month. It's come in really handy, trust me. And, and, and the commercial said like, oh, your, your copier ran out of to- like toner? Just push the button. That was easy. And, and, and the copier's working again. You ran out of paper? Push the button. Poof, more paper appears. You have an annoying coworker who's listening to their obnoxious rap music so loud? Just push the button and poof, they start playing God's music. Country Western, can I get an amen? <laughs> And listen, there's going to be people who try to kind of convince you that when you become a follower of Jesus, like as soon as you hop out of the baptistry, they should just hand you one of these because following Jesus will make all of your problems disappear. The problem is our life experience doesn't quite go along with that, does it? 
because we pray hard for our kids and our grandkids and we try to raise them in the Lord and then sometimes they reject your faith or they make decisions that just break your heart anyway or, or you're doing all the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. You're trying to be in God's word and pray and be in community and cast your cares on the Lord but you're just still racked with anxiety. You got health issues that keep on coming up. Or, or, or you take a step of courage trying to be obedient and you try to share your story and, and, you, and you have a faith conversation with your coworker and instead of saying, oh yes, tell me more about this Jesus whom you follow, they look at you like you're an alien, right? Like, it, shouldn't it be easier than this? We're, we're trying to follow God. Like, you know, it shouldn't be like, you know, you're, you're running out of money at the end of the month, you don't know how you're gonna pay the bills and you push the easy button and, and poof, like God fills up your bank account again. Wouldn't that be nice? Or you got a boss who's like a jerk, he's like Darth Vader, and then you push the button and poof, he turns into baby Yoda, you know, all cute and cuddly. Shouldn't faith work like this? And the only problem with easy button faith is that it's not in the Bible. <laughs> in fact, the Bible says that if you wanna follow Jesus, it's gonna be tough. It doesn't come with an easy button. First Peter chapter four says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. John chapter 15, Jesus himself says, listen, if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you also. Expect hostility. Somebody said one time, if you're trying to be the light of the world, you should expect to attract a few bugs. Because <laughs> following Jesus has always been countercultural. Not just in our culture, in every culture throughout history. There's no such thing as the good old days. It has always been a call to radical countercultural obedience. Following Jesus at times will put you at odds with both the political right and the political left. Can I talk to the young people in the room? As you read the book of Daniel, remember that there will come a time in your life when you're called to take a stand instead of bowing down with everybody else and you're gonna look foolish to them. Can I talk to the middle-aged people? As you read the book of Daniel, you should know that there's gonna come a time when God is gonna call you to be obedient to the convictions he's given you in his word, and it's gonna mean putting your financial security on your line and your job at risk. And can I talk to the, how shall we say it, more seasoned ones of you in the room, those shiny heads I see out there? This text actually talks most directly to older people because here in Daniel chapter six, Daniel's not a kid anymore. He's been in Babylon for over 70 years at this point, serving in the government. Imagine that we had a secretary of state who served from every president from Harry Truman until now. That's Daniel. He's in his 80s, maybe even his 90s at this point. He's been faithful to God. He's had a great career. You'd think that maybe by now he's earned the right to relax a little bit to enjoy the retirement life, to kick back, to slow down a gear, maybe to let his guard down. But this text tells us that there is never a season in your life where it's okay to coast. And this text tells us that you are never too old to be called and used by God. In fact, I think one of the greatest assets that God has given Plainfield Christian Church is our retired people because you guys have wisdom and resources and time at your disposal that God wants you to leverage for the good of his kingdom. So if you got your steel-toed boots on, let me just tell you, if you're not giving, if you're not serving, if you're not pouring into the people who are coming behind you, we need your help. We need you. God's put you here for a reason. Because this text also tells us that you are never too old 
to be under the attack of the enemy. So regardless of your season of life right now, expect hostility. But maybe there's something even deeper here. Maybe Daniel's secret to divergent thinking, to faithfulness in Babylon, isn't just to expect hostility. Maybe it's also to live with integrity. Live with integrity. I don't know if you noticed, but the text here, it specifically highlights Daniel's ethics and his excellence in his job. And you know, sometimes in the church, we can fall prey to dividing work into like secular work and sacred work. That on the one hand, you've got secular work. You've got the Christian professionals, the lawyers and the teachers and the truck drivers, the Christian professionals. But then over here, you've got the professional Christians, the sacred work. And if you really want to make a difference, you need to be a professional Christian, a preacher or a missionary or something. But you know, most of our heroes in the Bible didn't get their paycheck from a church. Gideon was a farmer. Moses was a shepherd. Deborah was a public servant. She was a judge. Jesus was a carpenter, Peter was a fisherman, Luke was a doctor, Lydia sold fabric, Paul was a tent maker. They were blue collar workers who did their everyday jobs for the glory of God. And we should too. In fact, this is a really crucial thing for raising up the next generation of disciples, teaching them how to work for God, regardless of what field of work they're in. You might remember a few weeks ago, we referenced the recent study done by the Barna Group where they surveyed current 18 to 29-year-olds in America who had grown up in church. And they found that of all these kids who grew up in church, today, only 10% of them classified as resilient disciples of Jesus. And so the Barna Group looked at what were the core practices that helped to shape these disciples, and they found five core practices. And I think that every single one of these, God has uniquely positioned our church to meet on behalf of the next generation. Can I give you a few examples? They found that one of those core practices was that those young people had meaningful intergenerational relationships with other followers of Jesus. God has made us a generationally diverse church. We want to use that for his glory and raising up the next generation of Christians. Another practice that shaped those resilient disciples was that they had been trained to engage in a countercultural kingdom mission. They'd been taught how to be followers of Jesus, even when it looked foolish, even when it meant divergent thinking compared to the world. And that's what we want to do for our young people. That's what's happening over there in the treehouse right now. And the third practice was that they had been trained in intentional vocational discipleship. And that they'd been taught how to go about their career for the good of the kingdom. How to work regardless of what work it was. How to work with integrity and integrate their faith into their work life. And that's what Daniel did. That's what God's calling us to do too. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verse 23, he says, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Your job is about so much more than just paying the bills. It's about so much more than just building a resume or a portfolio. It's about so much more than just gaining significance or chasing the American dream. What would happen if you went about your job like Daniel did, seeing it as a calling from God on your life? I love that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, He should sweep streets as Michelangelo painted, as Beethoven composed music, as Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven paused to say, here lived a street sweeper who did his job well. You know, earlier on, when when the people of Israel first went into exile in Babylon, there were these prophets who came to the people and they They spoke to them. They said things like, hey, don't don't forget Babylon's evil. Don't get too close to Babylon. 
Don't, don't integrate with Babylon. In fact, you should pray for God to destroy Babylon. Don't get infected by them. Don't help Babylon. But the Bible says, actually, those were the false prophets. And so God sent a true prophet to Israel, the prophet Jeremiah, and he had a different message for God's people. Here's what Jeremiah said in chapter 29. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Here's God's message for how to live faithfully in exile. Ready? Here it is. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, as exiles in Babylon, you should be good at your job. You should work hard. Don't twiddle your thumbs. I'm saying like climb the ladder. Move up, own the company, get paid. We know what the devil's people do with their money and influence. Let's show them what Jesus' people do when they get money and influence. Let's show them how we use it generously to bless our community and bless our workplace and bless our church and raise up the next generation of Jesus followers and support what God's doing all around the world. Let's show them what it looks like to live and work with integrity for the glory of God. That's what Daniel did. And I love, I love this. When Daniel's enemies see that this dude is so good at his job, they're gonna have to dig a little to expose him. They turn the Persian version of the FBI loose on him. I mean, they, they do surveillance, wiretaps, background check, IRS audit, you know, the whole nine yards here, and they can't find anything on him. No bribes, no bombshells, no mistresses, nothing, no corruption. And it just, it, it makes me have to ask the question, like, what if the FBI probed my life? What would they find? Would they find harsh words and impatient moments, laziness, angry outbursts, statements that weren't completely true? What if the FBI combed through your life? What would they find hiding in your closet? We know what people say about Christians and hypocrisy, right? The German philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche he was the one who said, God is dead. And, and Frederick Nietzsche, one time, he was talking with a Christian friend and he said, you will have to look more redeemed before I believe in your redeemer. You and I are never gonna win anyone into the kingdom of God by how cool we are. But we may win some people into the kingdom of God by how strange we are. And we may win some people into the kingdom of God by how holy and pure we are. And we may win some people into the kingdom of God by how we work with excellence and integrity compared to the world. That's why Peter says to the church in 1 Peter chapter two, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. That's why the thing that you need most, the thing that we need most from you the thing your spouse needs most, the thing your kids and grandkids need most, the thing your boss needs most, the thing this church needs most from you is your personal holiness. Live with integrity. But you know what? I, I think 
Daniel's secret to faithfulness in Babylon actually lay in something even deeper than that. I mean, yes, expect hostility and yes, live with integrity, but I think the heart of all of it is this. If you wanna be faithful in Babylon, trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. That's what Daniel does and you see it reflected in his prayer life. Check this out in verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. You wanna know how Daniel was able to be faithful in the moment of crisis? Habit. Do the math. Says Daniel prayed three times a day. He's been in Babylon 70 years. Three times a day, 365 days a year, 70 years. That means that Daniel has got down on his knees in Babylon and prayed facing Jerusalem over 75,000 times. That's the key. The greatest danger that Daniel faces here is not the lion's den. The greatest danger Daniel faces is the temptation not to pray. Oh, come on, Daniel. Just a month, like take a break, dude. It's not worth risking all of it. Or at least close the windows, dude. Shut the blinds. But when King Darius issues this decree to stop praying, do you think Daniel wrestled with it with deep inner turmoil? What am I gonna do? No, I I think that probably spiritual muscle memory just took over. Someone said that Daniel had significant spiritual power because he had sustained spiritual habits. We've talked about this before, how the greatest obstacle for life in Babylon for God's people is not the wickedness of the world, but the prayerlessness of the church. So if we're gonna be faithful in Babylon, then our courage in the lion's den will come from our consistency in our prayer life. That's why we wanna devote ourselves to prayer as a church, but we also recognize that like, prayer's tricky. It's hard sometimes to know what to say or how to start or what to do or it feels like it's not getting through. And so we wanna absolutely put the ball on the tee for you, so all you have to do is swing, okay? We're sending out these prayer texts as a part of this series. Not gonna spam you, gonna send you one text a day for the life of this series every weekday to just help us so we can devote ourselves to prayer together. So you can pull out your phone right now. I want you to text PCC Pray to 77411. That's PCC Pray to 77411, not gonna sell you anything. We just wanna pray together. And I don't know about you, those of you who've already signed up, but these prayer texts have come at really good times for me. They've been good for my heart over the last few weeks, and I know they will be for you as well. Meanwhile, back here in the text, uh, (laughs) Daniel's enemies just happened to be watching his window with binoculars, and they just happened to see Daniel praying three times a day for several days. And then they just happened to go to the king, and they said, man, king, We really hate to tell you this, but guess what Daniel's doing? Verse 11, checking out. It says, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Uh, Daniel, like your kids, right? Uh, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. 
The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. See the irony there? The king was the one who couldn't sleep. (laughs) Wonder what Daniel's doing. I don't know, I'm just guessing. But my guess is that if Jesus trusted God enough that he could sleep in the bottom of the boat during the storm in Acts chapter four, or excuse me, Mark chapter four, and if Peter trusted God enough that he could sleep in prison on the night before his execution in Acts chapter 12, my guess is Daniel's probably sleeping like a baby. That's what happens when you trust God's sovereignty. Take a look, verse 19 says, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered. (laughs) May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty, just so we're clear. (laughs) The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Did you catch that? Those lions suffered an acute attack of divine lockjaw. Not because Daniel was so strong or so wise or so good or so brave or so cool, but because he trusted God. And you can too. And Daniel knew that God could be trusted. He trusted God's sovereignty because he knew God's word. Daniel had read Psalm 147 that says, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Daniel had read Psalm 139 where David says to God, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. And Daniel trusted that God was sovereign, that God was in control, that God was good, that God was strong, that God was wise, that God was working on his behalf even when he didn't understand it. And no matter what you're facing today, you can trust that too. Because you've got something way better than an easy button. The very same God who shut the mouths of the lions on Daniel's behalf is the same God who is still good, still strong, still wise, and is still working on your behalf. So just trust him. I've got a friend uh, who's one of those weightlifter people. You guys know those people I'm talking about, right? Like he's just jacked, he's all hulked up, one of those gym rat kind of people. And I actually really like those people because they're the easiest people in the world to buy clothes for, right? If you buy them a shirt that's too big, they're flattered. And if you buy them a shirt that's too small, they'll wear it. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? And my buddy, he's like a workout freak. He's kind of a boxer dude. And and he, he was wearing this shirt. He's got this shirt that says, pray for the bear. I was like, okay, dude, I'll take the bait. What's with the shirt? He said, well, because if I run across the bear, don't pray for me, pray for the bear. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And he actually got me a pray for the bear shirt, no lie. But I 
I'm like, look at me, <laughs> look at this. And, and this is true, I told them, I said, listen, I've actually come across bears in the wild on multiple occasions, I really have, and every time I did, it was me who ran, not the bear, not gonna wear the shirt. <laughs> But then, and this is true, my, my wife, Rebecca, she took this shirt. And so uh, lately, for the last several weeks, she's been kind of strutting around the house in this Pray for the Bear shirt. And it's working. I haven't picked a fight with her in like a month. This is really, it's been great. <laughs> Church is getting crazy. Preacher's taking his shirt off, y'all. Man, this place went downhill fast after Steve left. <laughs> I think Daniel could wear this shirt. (laughs) I think Daniel could wear this shirt because he'd read his Bible. And he knew the story of that little shepherd boy named David who was watching his sheep and one day a lion came along and with the help of Almighty God, David killed that lion. And Daniel could wear this shirt because he knew his Bible and he knew the story of Samson who was walking along the road and he came across a lion and with the help of Almighty God, he killed that lion. And Daniel could wear this shirt because he knew the story of Benaiah in 2 Samuel chapter 23 who went down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day and with the help of Almighty God, he killed that lion and he walked out victorious. And Daniel could wear this shirt because he knew his Bible and he'd read Psalm 91 that says, the one who says the Lord is my refuge, he shall tread on the lion. And so when Daniel went down that day into the pit with the lions, (laughs) it wasn't Daniel in the lion's den. The lions were in Daniel's den. And when Daniel comes across a lion, you better pray for the lion because he doesn't stand a chance. And Christian, I'm here to tell you that you can wear this shirt too. Not because you're strong, not because you're good, not because you're cool, not because you're wise, but because God is. You see, the point of the book of Daniel, the point of the whole Bible, isn't to give us heroes to imitate. It's to give us a savior to adore. Because about 500 years after Daniel, there came another man who lived with integrity, except he was actually perfect. His name is Jesus, and he was God's son, and he came to do what we couldn't do, and he was the greater Daniel. He lived with integrity, and as he did, he expected hostility, and he got it. Those around him were jealous of his power, and he too was arrested as he prayed, And he too was dragged to court and tried up on trumped up charges. And he too was condemned to die. And he too was thrown into a cave and a stone was rolled over the entrance, except this time Jesus was actually dead. And he lay there in the tomb, his body stone cold, rigid, laying there on that stone tablet table. And he lay there dead on Friday night. And on Saturday morning, and on Saturday night, but on Sunday morning, as the first rays of dawn peeked up over the horizon, the breath of God came riding on the wind, and it was as if the Almighty himself was whispering, arise, my son. And that cold, dead heart began to beat. And that blood that had been thick and still began to pulse warmly through his veins and his chest heaved as he took in the great breath of life from God himself and he swung his legs off the table. He moved his fingers, his eyes came open and the son of God, the king of heaven, roared back to life. And he defeated sin and death and Satan and hell. It's all done. 
<laughs> so yeah, we're gonna look foolish as we seek to be divergent thinkers following God in Babylon, we should expect hostility as we live with integrity, but we're gonna keep trusting God's sovereignty because we're the people of Jesus. And when we are in him, even though your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion trying to devour you, <laughs> you better pray for the lion <laughs> so he doesn't stand a chance. Let's pray. Almighty King of heaven, thanks for doing what we couldn't do, Lord. Um, you're so strong, you're so good, you're so wise. And we wanna follow you. We need courage, Lord. We just need your courage because you know our weakness and you know our fear. So I'm asking for my brothers and sisters here in the room today that you just help them trust you, strengthen their faith, Lord. And we wanna walk in here not confident in ourselves but in confident in you to do everything that you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. You know, this whole pray for the lion thing, it might seem kind of boastful, because it is. <laughs> but the Bible says, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. We take this thing called communion every week, which is an acknowledgement that we have nothing to boast in of ourselves. We have no righteousness, no perfection, no strength, no wisdom on our own. But Jesus Christ did everything that needs done. He has won the battle, he has defeated the enemy, and because of him, we can be strong, not in ourselves, but in him. So I'm gonna give you a moment to take the bread that represents his body, that was crucified for your sin, and then we'll take the juice together that represents his blood that was poured out so you could be washed clean. And if you need today to embrace this Jesus who is reaching out to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not taking that step of being obedient to him in baptism, surrendering him to him and letting him fill you with the strength that only he can give, please don't put it off. I'm gonna be up here the rest of the service. We'd love, love, love to talk with you. Let's take the victory feast together. He is our strength. He is our hope. Let's rejoice in his victory. This is the blood of Christ. If you believe that today, let's stand and praise our God who has rescued us so that we are no longer slaves to fear. Yeah.